Well, this morning is going to be a little different. It's not going to be as much of a sermon as a history lesson of sorts, but we're going to draw a few lessons out of it as well. But we're going to look at one of our pioneers this morning. The title we're going with this morning is The Cancer That Feeds on Goodness. Maybe some of you already have a guess as to what that might be. But this morning, we're going to look at one of our pioneers, John Harvey Kellogg, born in 1852 to Anne and John Kellogg. Now, he was one of 16 siblings. That's quite a handful, isn't it? Now, the first five were born to another gal, uh, and then she passed away. I'm not exactly sure what from, but Anne was a little bit hardier because she was able to have 11 children, um, and in that entire lineup, John was number 10. His parents, John and Anne, were abolitionists, and they were part of the Underground Railroad there in Michigan. And one day, while John Sr. was out in the fields and working and doing all kinds of things, as they constantly had to do to get ready for winter and all those types of things, a neighbor came by and asked and invited him to come to some tent meetings. And he piqued his interest a little bit. He went to one set of tent meetings, and he was really into this now. He was studying his Bible, and then Joseph Bates came along, and he went to his tent meeting, and eventually they were baptized. By age 10, John Kellogg began working in his father's broom shop. Something else that's interesting that you may or may not know is that the Whites and the Kelloggs were really close friends. Now, I know that one picture of the Kelloggs is especially small, but John is uh, right over here. He's this smaller young man right here, and of course, that's not all 16 because they grow up and they move on and all the rest, but they were really good friends. In fact, on this other side, we have Willie right here next to Ellen White, and this is Edson. And he was about their same age. I don't know how close these pictures were and being taken together, but they were about the same age, and they would run around together. They would have fun. They'd get into mischief, and you know how that goes. At the age of 14, John read his first general health book called Health or How to Live. Now, this was a set of six pamphlets that were written by Ellen White just three years after her major health reform vision of 1863. And it was a combination of what she had been shown, but also trying to get some support from the scientists of the day and people that had some credibility to support what she had been shown. And that's what was in these pamphlets. And so John Harvey Kellogg got these pamphlets. He was leafing through them at age 14, and he was so excited to learn about health and nutrition and lifestyle, health reform concepts. And he was particularly interested because he was a smaller young man, and he was, his health wasn't the best. And he later quoted, he said, it was the sweetest thing I'd ever heard, and I got hold of it, and I've tried to stick to it the best I could ever since. Also, that same year, at the age of 14, John saw the building of the Health Reform Institute. So we're in 1866, and that was in Battle Creek, Michigan. It was based on a vision Ellen White had in the previous year where she was shown our people should have an institution 
of their own, under their own control for the benefit of the disease and suffering among us. So that's what she was shown, and they responded with this Health Reform Institute. Now later at age 21, James and Ellen White encouraged Edson and Willie, their own sons, but also John, who they also considered like a son, to attend the R.T. Trails Hygiene and Therapeutic College in New Jersey. Now you may recall, and you may be wondering, hygiene and medical college, well, hygiene was a pretty new thing back then. In fact, much of hygiene was not very well understood. The average life expectancy shows a little bit how poor the hygiene was at that time. 32 was the average age in 1800. Can you imagine? 32. It improved slightly. By 1850, it was 41. So I have still a good five years left. By 1900, it was 50. By 1950, 67. And today, it's about 79. Now, I've heard that's starting to go the other way. So maybe these principles are still needed today, and perhaps it's very relevant even today. A couple other things about hygiene and why people perhaps didn't live as long. Fruits and vegetables were largely avoided by many who believed that the deadly cholera epidemic of 1832 had been brought about by fruit. So we're just not going to touch it. We're going to leave it alone. Of course, there was the lack of refrigeration and unsanitary processing, And most people seldom took a bath. You're going to enjoy this one. Some authorities claim the average American of the 1830s never took a bath during their entire life. Johnny, your head stinks. Why don't you run down and jump in the creek? It's cold. There's ice on the creek. I'm going to wait till spring. Never took a bath their entire life. It's interesting when we look at some of these films of this time period, how they romanticize everything, don't they? Everything is pristine and everything is just nice and in its place, but that really wasn't the picture. Even as late as 1855, New York City had only 1,361 bathtubs for its almost 630,000 residents. That's not near enough bathtubs. In fact, one of our relatives, they live uh, just outside of Knoxville, Marysville, is that where it is? And they live in a house that had one of the only bathtubs for a long time. It was a physician's home, and people would line up on Saturday nights to take a bath at the physician's home. Sanitation. I don't know if you can see here. This is actually a horse uh, passed away on the street. These kids aren't paying any mind. That's uh, in New York City. Sewage was dumped on the streets along with trash since there was not a garbage collection system. It was not uncommon for dead animals to lie in the streets for weeks. Can you imagine that? It's no wonder Ellen White wanted the skirts to come up a little bit because who wants it dragging through all of that? And then, of course, you add all of the things that the horses are leaving behind in the road, and then you have some nice dry days, and it gets trampled so thin that then it gets picked up in the wind and blown around. I mean, these were wonderful times. Hospitals. Here we have somebody covered in mice. If you did get sick, you certainly didn't want to go to a hospital as it tended to be a death sentence, a place people went to die. 
And you'll pick up some of that in some of Ellen White's statements about hospitals, but you have to keep in mind the times in which she's referring to, right? Um, let's talk about that a little bit more. Bloodletting, giving of mercury, uh, strychnine, which is extremely poisonous, but in that age it was thought that fever and vomiting and diarrhea were signs of recovery. If we can just get them to have diarrhea a little bit longer, if we can just take out a little bit more blood... In fact, I think it was our first president that passed away with some of these same techniques. And the headline read, top medical, uh, not technology, but something, practices used and still he didn't survive. And I wonder if they were the ones that in fact killed him. I don't know. Surgery was done without anesthesia. So you can imagine the challenge there. So speed was of the essence. It is said that the army surgeons, the good ones in the Civil War, could lop off a leg in just 40 seconds. And here you have a crew of people holding down their friend so that they could do the deed. Aren't you glad you live in 2015? <clears throat> Since surgeons had no knowledge of germs, stop and think about that. No knowledge of germs or how infection spread. This was all very new and it was all very theoretical and they didn't know if that was even uh, the case. They thought some of these people were crazy that suggested it. They did not feel it necessary to change aprons or knives or even wash their hands between surgeries. So I've just been digging in and working in this person over here, and I'll take this knife, and I'll just wipe it off on my apron, and I'll dig into you over here. I'm sorry, ma'am. Your husband didn't make it. We did everything we could. And they put it back in their cloth there and wrap it up, and away they'd go to the next. <clears throat> so hygiene was very important. This is one of the first places that... Uh, <clears throat> that Kellogg went to school, the Bellevue Hospital Medical College in New York City, in New York. Uh, this was after the Hygiene Therapeutic College. And in fact, James and Ellen White loaned John $1,000 to attend school here. Now, in today's money, that's about $18,000. That's a chunk of change. But Ellen White was shown that the Lord had a very special work for John Kellogg. Didn't know what it was. She didn't know what it was. But she says, the Lord has a very special work for you, John. And they believed in him. While he was attending there and, and going through school, they also, the Adventist Church, asked him to be the editor of the Health Reformer, a publication. And he later renamed it Good Health. And he continued to be the editor of that magazine uh, for life. And upon completion of college in 1875... He was a professor at Battle Creek Adventist College. Now, that was in 1875. It just opened in 1874, so it was still a very new and fresh school, and here we had a very young, fresh college graduate as one of the professors. Now, just as a side note, in 1901, it moved to, does anyone know? Bering Springs, where it is today, and now we know it as... Andrews University, that's right. Besides teaching, John also joined the staff of the Health Institute and served as secretary of the board. You remember this Health Institute here? There it is in all of its glory. And in July of 1876, James White came to John Harvey Kellogg. In fact, he'd come to him the year before and said, John, why don't you lead this institution? It wasn't doing well. It was floundering. And he says, 
I don't have enough experience. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm far too young. No, 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 no. Only one year goes by. James White comes and approaches John Harvey Kellogg again and says, you really have got to take this on. We need you. Please consider this. And so John decided and thought it over that he would be the medical superintendent of the Health Institute. Only 24 years old, by the way. And he felt inadequate and ill-prepared, but with a little coaxing, he was convinced. But he had a few conditions. He would have full control. And secondly, he's only going to try it for one year, and after that, we'll reconsider James White said, good enough, you've got it, it's yours. And so that's how they went. Of course, we know that one year turned into 67 years. But initially, many were very skeptical of this young buck. 24 years old, what can he possibly know about heading this big institution? And some of the patients felt the very same. How do you feel when Doogie Hauser comes walking into your room to treat you, and you say, oh, what are you, 12? Doogie Hauser didn't exist back then, but I'm sure he got comments similar to that. Many of the patients left, and so that, of course, added to the groans of people, but very soon, their patient base doubled and tripled. Their debt was paid off within the first seven months, and so very quickly, he gained their respect. After that first year, he renamed this uh, Health Reform Institute to the Battle Creek Medical and Surgical Sanitarium. And he coined that word, sanitarium. Wasn't even in the dictionary. Some people made fun of him for that. But he says it's a place free from the growth and spread of germs. Sanitary, sanitize, that whole idea. That was just a new idea, but he had, he had caught on to that. And he says it will mean a place where people can come to get well, but also, and probably more so, to stay well. We call that today preventative medicine. Oftentimes it was simply referred to, instead of that long name, they just called it the SAN. And it thrived under his leadership. In just one year, or a year and a half, they decided to make plans and they moved from this I don't know if I want to say little house, but for a sanitarium it would be small, uh, to this big building here, the Battle Creek Sanitarium in 1878, very quickly. A hundred years before the U.S. Air Force developed aerobics, John Kellogg prescribed such exercise for his patients, emphasizing walking and cycling and swimming. He claimed he could stay five years ahead of modern science. So here they are doing breathing exercises at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Now, if he was questioned, now how can you stay five years ahead of the most modern medical science? And he would say very plainly, it's quite easy. When these new physicians come out with a theory, I can know immediately if it's right or not, just from the writings of Ellen White and her health vision. If it falls in line with that body of knowledge, we accept it and we start using it right away. But if it does not, we just don't touch it. We leave it alone. 
And so while all these other places were kind of groping their way along, wondering, is this germ theory? Is that theory about aerobics? Is this theory about swimming? Is this all the, the thing to do? He knew straight away from the gift of prophecy and moved forward and said he always had a five-year start on the rest. This also meant that he kept a really good relationship with his second mother, if you will, Ellen White. In fact, they wrote more letters to each other outside of immediate family. Uh, The only one exception was S.N. Haskell received more letters from Sister White, but the next in line was John Harvey Kellogg. I would say he was a pretty smart guy to be able to be in communication with her and to seek her counsel. And so we have other inventions that he made, a lot of exercise equipment. We have hydrotherapy, all kinds of things. Some things he got ridiculed for, um, but a lot of it largely was helpful. Now, these pictures are from a little bit later. In fact, this is a sanitarium that was built many years later, but he liked to take the patients outside to be able to get sunlight. And so here we have a bunch of beds outside in the sun, here the same thing, fresh air, sunshine. I mean, you stop and think about that time period where everything was closed up and you had black mold and you had mildew and you had respiratory issues and and on and on and on. This was a much better way to do things. So he emphasized the total abstinence from alcohol, tea, coffee, tobacco, and animal flesh. He spoke of the importance of proper diet, adequate rest, exercise, fresh air, healthful dress, and simple remedies. And you could always recognize Dr. Kellogg. He liked to wear the white suit, and he always would ride his bike to work every morning. And and I think he was a little bit vertically challenged, and people could recognize him right away. Now, another thing, he was talking to the patients one day, and he was asking how they were enjoying the food, and they were really complaining and grumbling about the food. And so he came up with this idea called granola, thoroughly cooked, partially digested, one pound more than equals three pounds of best beef, granola. Have you had granola this morning, anybody? I did. I tell you, if, if, if for no other reason than that right there, that's completely redefined my entire life, granola. If I don't get my granola, it's not going to be a good day. Anyway, as a result, it was so well received that people were demanding it. He never wanted to set up a business for it, and he's really never the one that did. But it was so demanded by the patients that it did become a bit of a side business, so to speak. And Battle Creek soon became known as the breakfast food capital of the world. Excuse me. Now, just as a side note here, a lot of people think, oh, John Harvey Kellogg. But this is his younger brother by, I think, uh, eight years, Will Keith Kellogg. And he's the one that really, uh, he was working with his brother some. He also worked down in in some of our uh, institutions down in Texas that were set up. But eventually he came back, was working with his brother with this serial thing as an entrepreneur. He says, I could do something with this. And so this is the very first uh, cornflake box. And many people, all the who's who's in America like to say they've been on the cornflakes box, right? But there's this beginning. It says Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company. And it even has his initials there, W.K. Kellogg on the box. So it was kind of a spinoff from his older brother. 
while we're talking about Will Keith here, he uh, also knew the Whites very well. They grew up together. In fact, James White performed his wedding later on in life when he got married. But in his 20s, he started to be disenfranchised with the church. He worked for the church some, and I think partly because of his brother's influence and, and other things. He did marry an Adventist, and she remained Adventist all the way through, and he had a good relationship with the church. But he dropped out of church and had his name removed, unfortunately. So returning to the Battle Creek Sanitarium, Kellogg continued to build and add on and build and add on and go further and further into debt. By 1900, it was the largest institution of its kind in the world. And by this time, Kellogg was resenting being part of the church. He didn't see the medical work as being under the general conference or a part of church work. He saw it as its own entity. He began to resent the fact that ministers were on the board of trustees that had no medical background at all. Some of them were still meat eaters. He felt that doctors were superior to ministers. And he began devising plans to separate from the church. And it was during this time that Ellen White counseled him over and over and over. But really it distills down to three major themes um, that she talked to him about. The first was caution against overwork. It seems to me that John Harvey Kellogg was a bit of a perfectionist. And she would encourage him to, to give more assignments and to delegate and to, to spread things out. And he got frustrated. It's not that I'm trying to overwork. It's just there's nobody else capable. I'm the only one that can do it and do it well and do it right. And it has to be done right. And so I just have to stay. I don't want to be pushing this pencil in the office all day long. And so she counseled him over and over against overwork. Uh, one of the quotes here, you're living two years in one, and I utter my protest against this. Anybody here working two years in one? Don't raise your hand. Overwork. <clears throat> the second thing she cautioned him about was his spiritual life. Now, let me ask you, if you are overworking, is that going to affect your spiritual life? Absolutely it will. You're getting in super late, you're crashing into the bed, you're waking up just in time to grab some granola and be off to your first appointment. There's no time in the Word, no time in prayer, no time for the Lord to speak to you in those quiet moments of the day. And so she really counseled him about his spiritual life as well. She would say things like, live for Jesus. You can better work as a physician in the sanitarium if you make Christ your physician-in-chief. That's pretty profound if you stop and think about it. Simple but profound. We like to think that we don't have time to invest in our spiritual life. But the reality is when we invest in our spiritual life, God's going to make everything else go smooth. He's going to give us wisdom to know how to handle the situations, help us navigate, prioritize. Kind of like stewardship, right? How am I going to get more out of this 90% or after I pay church budget, it might be quite a bit less than that in offerings. How am I going to, to get more out of this 80% that remains than if I keep the whole 100? How am I going to get more out of my day if I take an hour every day to spend time with God? 
live for Jesus. You can better work as a physician or a minister or as a teacher or as a nurse, as a parent. Whatever it might be, you can do it more effectively if you're grounded in the Word and paying attention to your spiritual life. So the third thing, the third area that she counseled him in a lot was his tendency to strive for the supremacy. Back to that idea of, I have to be the one to do it. I can't trust anybody else. Ellen White also counseled him on spreading out the work instead of building mammoth institutions. She warned that he was in danger of exalting himself like the biblical Nebuchadnezzar of placing ideas above, or ideas of science, I should say, above the Bible, which is rather ironic because it was what really put him out there was his willingness to submit to the spirit of prophecy and to God's Word, everything that was out there. But he gradually, there was this shift, and in his own ego, in his own pride, in his own success, he started to think, you know what? Ellen White's wrong about this one. The church leaders are wrong about that one. They don't even know what they're talking about. And he started placing ideas of science above the Bible. She also warned him about his dangerous pantheistic ideas of God within us as a means to heal ourselves. She called it wrong and asked him, that he never teach it in our institutions. She even said at one point it was framed by Lucifer, the fallen angel. She called it the Alpha, from which the Omega would follow. And I believe we're seeing some of that today, very much so. Also, during this time, the sanitarium's 30-year charter had expired. So in drafting the new charter, Kellogg used the word undenominational, explaining that it meant the sanitarium would accept any patient regardless of their spiritual background. Yet he would later argue that that word made the sanitarium legally independent from the church. In February 18, 1902, John Kellogg was on a train station returning from the West Coast when a reporter spotted him in his customary white suit and came up and asked him, Dr. Kellogg, Dr. Kellogg, are you going to rebuild the sanitarium? And he said, no, we're not going to rebuild the sanitarium. We have a perfectly good sanitarium. And he said, have you not heard? Heard what, young man? Just this morning, the sanitarium burned to the ground. Back here's a picture of the fire that burned the Battle Creek Sanitarium on that morning of 1902. There was very little of anything left to salvage. And this was Ellen White's counsel on that event. White stated that this event was a judgment from the Lord specifically for Kellogg not heeding the light given to him. You would think that would get his attention. 
She urged him to rebuild smaller facility, a smaller facility and to spread out the medical work to other cities instead of concentrating so much in Battle Creek. Part of this time she was in Australia. She said, we have great needs here in Australia. We don't need to build up these mammoth institutions right there. We need to spread out the work. But he chose to rebuild right there in Battle Creek anyway. One means he would use to fund this was by donating the proceeds of his new book called The Living Temple, filled with his pantheistic ideas. In the process of building, costs were much greater than they anticipated, and they went further and further in debt. Now, this other guy on the screen, A.G. Daniels, was the relatively new, been there a few years, general conference president, and he saw the enormous debt that the general conference and also the different uh, divisions and unions were carrying in terms of debt. And he says, we've got to get rid of this debt. We've got to build, but with a cash, on a cash basis as we move forward. Well, this wasn't the mindset of John Harvey Kellogg. We have to build, we have to build. If we build it, the people will come and we'll pay for it down the line. And so these two men certainly did not see each other uh, eye to eye on this issue. Granted, this was at the height of Kellogg's power. Kellogg, at this point in time, had 1,500 physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers under his employ, outnumbering the ministerial and evangelistic employees of the entire world church. Upon filling the post, I guess I already talked about that. So while these two were on a trip to the European General Conference session in England, Kellogg was proposing his idea of building a sanitarium there. And they were talking numbers, and they were talking property, and how it would work, and all these different things. And it became very clear that this would require the people there to assume a debt of $25,000. Daniel says, we can't do that. We just have to stop. We cannot continue to do this. And Kellogg became more and more upset and outraged that this story here just really blows my mind. He physically took A.G. Daniels and shoved him into a wash closet or broom closet or something, locked the door behind him, and gave him a tongue lashing for almost two hours. To which A.G. Daniels continued to be polite to my understanding and, and respond, I'm sorry, John, but we can't do that. We have, we have to be faithful to the people that are here. We can't strap them with that amount of debt. And finally, after almost two hours, John Harvey Kellogg left in a huff and returned back to America. In the meantime, a committee had been formed to review Kellogg's book. You remember what it was? The Living Temple. In fact, here's a picture of that book and the picture of Kellogg there. At an autumn council, it was voted not to print it. And immediately following that decision, however, this is still uh, the same year that his sanitarium burned down, by the way. Immediately following the annual council vote not to print it, Kellogg made arrangements to have the book published at the review privately. 
For years, Ellen White had advised the review not to do such things. She said it was driven by greed and wanting to make money, and they'd print secular books and novels and other things, and she says, we, we can't do that kind of thing. And on December 29, 1902, with the lead plates ready to print Kellogg's book, filled with pantheistic ideas, a fire broke out and burned the review to the ground, described as the fire that could not be put out. You would think two fires within 10 months of each other would get your attention. And many hope that with the book plates destroyed, this might just be the end of his book. But Kellogg simply went to another commercial printer and had it printed that way. And he also started to step up his criticism of who he used to call mom, Ellen White. A mom of sorts. It was that fire of the review that led to the relocation of the Review and Herald Publishing House and the General Conference to the outskirts of Washington, D.C. But as for Kellogg, he rebuilt. And this is the mammoth institution that he built and had up within the year. In 1903. So it's not only this big building going across here, but it's every one of these wings here. This place is huge. In 1904, war was being waged between Daniels, A.G. Daniels, and Kellogg's way of thinking, and both groups met in Bering Springs, Michigan, and Ellen White pleaded for unity at that meeting. And there was a spirit of repentance that came over some. And Elder Prescott asked for forgiveness for wrongs and for things that he had said or attitudes that he had held. But Kellogg was too proud and said that Elder Prescott simply was admitting to failure, but that he had not failed. He'd done nothing wrong and he had nothing to apologize or repent about. And all this was a bunch of hogwash anyway. In the midst of all of these speeches, there was gloating, there was applause, there were people on both sides. It was a very contentious meeting. And at the end of these meetings, Ellen White gave a heartfelt appeal to Dr. Kellogg, who stood at the back of the room. <clears throat> oh, here's some more pictures of the sanitarium later. Um, the dining room. Uh, the ballroom at Battle Creek Sanitarium. So here's the appeal that Ellen White made. Dr. Kellogg, I appeal to you to submit to God. Your mother, before she died, made me promise to see her boys into the kingdom. God wants us to stand together. Yield. Give him your heart now. Yet he was completely unmoved seemed as if he completely did not care as he stood in the back of the auditorium constantly checking his pocket watch saying, I've got a train to catch. I don't have time for this. By 1906, there was a complete separation of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and the denomination. It was a severe blow to the medical missionary work. 
And if you go to Battle Creek today, you can still see the sanitarium. It's not called that now. Later, in 1928, they voted, the board of directors, no longer under an Adventist institution now, this is just Kellogg, to plunge the sanitarium into greater debt. And these towers, which they called them, the Twin Towers, cost about $4 million. The building was completed by 1928. The stock market crashed in 1929. And by 1933, the sanitarium went bankrupt. Here's the newspaper ad trying to advertise for this Battle Creek Sanitarium. It is the most completely equipped, eloquently appointed health institution in the world. The colossal main building alone covers seven acres and affords room accommodations for about 400 guests. All rooms are supplied with steam, heat, electric lights, on and on and on. Look at this beautiful Babylon that I have built. Here's how it looks today. I remember driving through there as a young man, having a hard time trying to decipher what was the sanitarium. But if you remember that picture several back of that main building with those three prongs sticking out the back and then the towers, and the towers are probably the most easily seen. In 1942, it became the Perry Jones Army Hospital. In 1954, to present it serves as the Hart Dole, Illinois Federal Center. And you can see the ballroom really hasn't changed in the last hundred years. Still there. When I look back and remember John Harvey Kellogg, I remember that God had chosen him for a very special work. That he was uniquely gifted and suited for such a work, and the Lord blessed him greatly. But what got in the way? Self. You remember those three things Ellen White warned him about over and over again? Overwork, which is really selfishness. Nobody can do as good a job as I can. Number two is spiritual life waned. Probably much from the overwork and not giving God time. And thirdly, constant seeking after power and supremacy. Had he followed these three I believe everything else would have fallen into place and probably would have never happened. So what's the cancer that feeds on goodness? Pride. The more you're doing things well, the more pride has a foothold. Pantheism, even at the heart, is based on pride, isn't it? The power to overcome, to get well, to do all things is in me, the God within. Thank you, Gary, for our scripture reading today. How much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who keeps his own, sorry, he who keeps his way preserves his soul. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall, as in an embarrassing fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he.
I think of this quote of Ellen White. She says, Dr. Kellogg has at times taken strong measures and has been firm and determined in the accomplishments of his purposes. He has an abominable will to carry through whatever he undertakes. Otherwise, he would not know now be standing on the high platform he has honorably reached. While he makes God his strength and loves and fears him, he will be rightly, what's the word? Balanced. But as surely as he loses his connection with God and attempts to go in his own strength, this same will that has proved a blessing will prove an injury to himself and to others. He will become more overbearing, tyrannical, exacting, and dictatorial. And that's exactly what we saw happen. It reminds me of another story in Scripture. Ezekiel 28, 12 says, Thus says the Lord God, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. Now think about that. The anointed cherub that covers, that means he was right next to God, doesn't it? You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. That's God again. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Right there next to Jesus. Right there. But he became prideful, seeking his own. Continuing on in Ezekiel 28, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. It is the same battle for supremacy. Isaiah 14 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Patriarchs and prophets, that very first chapter describes Lucifer with these words, not content, covet, power, spiritual resistance, pride, supremacy, envy, entitled, spirit of dissatisfaction, injustice to himself, assert his liberty. All of those further go to describe what Lucifer was feeling. And some of these quotes are amazing to me. In great mercy, according to his divine character, God bore long with Lucifer. So imagine the scene. Lucifer thinks that he deserves to be in that spot that Jesus is in. Why is he there? Why is it a trinity? Why isn't it a quadrity? How come I can't be in there? 
It's not fair. My rights. You can't trust him. They don't know what they're, you don't know what they're really up to. In fact, I have been back there. I can pull behind the curtain and, and show you what's behind the curtain. Let me tell you what it's really like, this trinity of yours. And in the midst of that kind of talk behind God's back, God bore long with Lucifer. What does that tell us about God? In his great mercy, he bore long. Another one, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong. He was convinced. He knew that he'd messed up. He knew that he'd made a poor choice. But we continue on. Though he had left his position as covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, and she talks more about accept him as the creator of all things, he would have been reinstated in his office. Again, the mercy of God. Now, Lucifer, we're going to put you on probation. No, you can be right back there as a covering cherub. If you will simply admit the fact that you're wrong. And he was convinced. He nearly reached the decision to return, but pride forbade him. Pride is powerful. Two fires in a year and you don't even see it. And so he was cast out of heaven and a third of the angels broke the heart of God. War broke out in heaven, it says in Revelation 12, verse 7. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world, the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I would submit to you, the devil's not that creative. He says it worked for me. I can get it to work for just about anybody else. You will not surely die. Is that what God told you? You can't trust him. Really, you're going to trust him? For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Sounds pantheistic to me. Knowing good and evil. You can't trust God. And so on pride, he gets her to cross the line. Yet someone here is convinced perhaps that, that that is not their problem, and let me suggest that perhaps that's a red flag right there. But Dr. William Backus in his book, What Your Counselor Never Told You, Neil Nedley recommends this book, Symptoms of pride, and I've shared this with you one time before. This will be another list you can see if you're guilty of. Just check yourself out here. Trying to be noticed, craving attention, itching for compliments, needing to be important, detesting the idea of being submissive, loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing, strongly opinionated, being argumentative, demanding your way. Wanting control over others. Flaunting your individual rights. Refusing advice. Being critical yet resenting criticism. Being oversensitive. Thinking you have excellences you really don't have. In fact, you can walk through the entire Bible and before every sin, I would submit to you that pride is there. 
before Eve eats the fruit, before Cain kills Abel, in the time before the flood, the Tower of Babel, Abraham taking Hagar, when Jacob steals the birthright, when Joseph's brothers sell him as a slave, all the way through. Before any sin is this idea, God doesn't know what he's talking about on this one. I know what is best. And that is the first sin, capital S-I-N, that leads to lowercase sins in the life. What were the three areas for Kellogg? Imbalance, spiritual neglect, and pride. And the devil's been really good at using those three. Worked for him, worked for Eve, worked throughout Scripture, and it still works today on you and me. But what does Proverbs remind us? Pride goes before destruction, the haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Humble spirit, teachable. Lord, I don't have what it takes. But in you, I can do all things. If you're calling me to do this thing, in your power, in your strength, but we have to remain humble and teachable like Kellogg was once upon a time. He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is she. Dear Lord, we surrender all to you this morning. And Lord, I want to recognize the pride in my own heart, the self-sufficiency, the self-centeredness, wanting things my way, being easily offended or argumentative, being overly possessive. Lord, this morning I ask for your forgiveness, that you will create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Lord, take away my fixation with myself. And as I spend time in your word each day, as I foster that relationship with you, that by beholding, Lord, may I become changed. I want to be humble and dependent, content, submissive to your spirit. I don't want to be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.